It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. One thing we normally do, you'll have heard this at the start, and Ian's just alluded to this, that we are sponsored by uh, the Made to be Measured campaign. Now, I'm going to do the sponsor read live, okay, as we start the podcast. Apparently, I do a different voice, and I just don't think that's true. He's on Times Radio, you know. (laughs) Thank you, Andy. Friday, Saturday, Sunday breakfast, 6am. Thank you. Uh, Right, so we are recording. Okay, you don't have to be, you know, just go with me on this. A dram of whiskey is one of life's little pleasures. But have you ever wondered how much... I'll do it again. (laughs) A dram of whiskey is one of life's little pleasures. But have you ever wondered how many units of alcohol are in the glass, Jeff? One measure of scotch is one unit of alcohol. Hollywood Sources is proud to be brought to you by the Scotch Whiskey Association's Made to be Measured campaign to help us all understand how much alcohol we are really drinking. Find out more at scotch-whiskey.org.uk slash made to be measured. And the podcast starts now. They say it to me all the time, like I wish political parties, because some of you have, actually you know, most political parties, they'll say, we'll have some good ideas that we'll agree on, so why can't you just get together and work together? And that's what we've got with the Greens. We've got two different political parties. Yep, we've got some policies in common. We've got some policies we don't agree with, hence why they're excluded from the Butte House Agreement. And we work together. And what I think is the best interest of Scotland. Welcome to Johnny Walker Prince's Street for the recording of Holyrood Sources Live with First Minister Hamza Yousaf. This is Holyrood Sources Live with Callum MacDonald, Jeff Aberdeen and Andy McKeever. From Johnny Walker, Prince Street in Edinburgh, I'm Callum MacDonald, and we are so thrilled to be brought to you by the Scotch Whiskey Association's Made to be Measured campaign. Here we are, a prime Edinburgh spot, bringing you an extended conversation with the First Minister of Scotland, Hamza Youssef, uh, live here from the Johnny Walker experience, demonstrating that we, unlike politicians, can organise the proverbial in a distillery. <laughs> Always drink responsibly. 
Uh, food and drinks are available this evening. Hope you've been enjoying those. If you're looking for somebody to get around in after the show, my advice is make sure they're not using an SNP credit card. It likely won't work. Or it'll get everybody in trouble. Uh, right, let's welcome the Ben and Nevis of Scottish political commentary, the Caledonian and McBrain of political insight. You will not need any deposit return scheme on your tickets this evening. No scheme required. It's the man who puts the dream in Aberdeen, the sparkle of the Granite City, and the man who ran the country while Alex Salmon took the credit. It's Jeff Aberdeen. <laughs> Did you run the country? Yes. Good. <laughs> he's probably the only Conservative staffer who's wanted to abolish the Tory party. And he can't get enough of the green dogs running Scotland today. It's Andy McKeever. <laughs> OK, a couple of admin... Oh, go on, sorry. Do you want well, a right of reply? It's a bit better for him than it was for me, isn't it? <laughs> So's his electoral success. I mean, I could have given you some... <laughs> 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 you've been done. We're two minutes in and you've been done. If you'd, if, you'd, if you'd asked me for my lines like you asked him for his lines... Uh, then I asked nobody for their party lines. Right, a couple of admin bits for those of you who are here in the room this evening and we're so thankful that you're here. We're so glad to see you. Uh, you can submit questions to be asked of the First Minister who will join us shortly. The literal First Minister of Scotland will be sitting on this chair with the green cushion. <laughs> in a moment or two. Uh, if you want to submit your questions, go to hollywoodsources.com forward slash ask. If you're tweeting along uh, on uh, Elon Musk's Fever Dream social networking site, use the hashtag HollywoodSourcesLive. And if you're tweeting pictures, crucially, ideally wait till you get my good side. That's that one. Uh, if this is the first time you've heard the podcast, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. And what a time to join us as we get ready to welcome the First Minister of Scotland onto the episode. Follow the podcast, subscribe to it, be part of it from here on out. Right, 30 seconds each of you, because we need to get to the First Minister. Uh, Jeff, what are you expecting? What are you hoping for out of this discussion tonight? Yeah, well, what I'm hoping for is to kind of tease out a little bit more about who uh, Hamza Youssef is as First Minister. I've said before in the podcast, I think he's been characterised by what he doesn't want to do. But what does he want to do as First Minister? And I think the great thing about this podcast is we'll give him a bit of a window to do that. Mm. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll ask some probing questions, but we must find out a little bit more about his vision for Scotland. I don't think that's been apparent yet. Andy? Yeah, I mean, look... The the truth is that at the moment, in policy terms, Hamza is still Nicola Sturgeon 2.0. Nothing's really changed uh, in terms of outcomes and delivery and policy, but he, you know, he has to now be his own man. And I think this format will allow him to do that. You know, we, we, he's got plenty of time. If Jeff keeps quiet, he's got plenty of time. <laughs> um, and he will, you know, he's going to be able to... This is his best format, I think. He's going to be able to articulate what he wants to say, offer the vision that he wants to offer... Um, and he's going to have the time and the space to do it. So I I'm going to be really interested myself to see how he does, and um, he's going to have some pretty challenging topics to be talking about, so I'm going to be interested to see how he does. I think it's going to be pretty revealing. Yeah, great. Now, you all know by now this podcast is constructive. That's what we always want to do. That's, the, that's our absolute mission statement, is not to be aggressive, not to be insulting, necessarily. Disagreement is valid. You hear disagreement. Disagreement is fine. But please, please bear in mind that your disagreement has to be civil this evening. Uh, not all podcasts have been in the last couple of weeks, but they're just badly managed. Uh, right. <laughs> Shall we welcome the First Minister of Scotland, Hamza Youssef?
You're right. I was going to say he's Come got a different drink to me, but I'm, a, uh, I'm actually having beer. As is in, in, a, in a mug, yeah, it was well <laughs> hidden. <laughs> it's not whiskey. <laughs> made Always to be measured. Made, made to, be to be measured. measured. Uh, great to see you, First Minister. Thank, Thank you for so being much. here. Um, I mentioned badly managed podcasts that you've done in the last couple of weeks. Are you? Can I just clear it? Are you going to swear on this podcast? <laughs> I've, no, I'm not. Uh, <laughs> I will try my best uh, to be well behaved. My mum did send me the screenshot of the news article afterwards and she did say um i hope you didn't say the full word because uh, it was asterisked out uh to which i may have told no i didn't i told the truth. Um, i will do my best to be my best behavior well, that's all we can ask that's, that's all we can ask do you know something I'm, I'm interested in just as we sort of say hello to you and and, yeah. and welcome you onto the podcast you know how has the transition been for you from being a minister to being first minister you had government experience previously what is it like now it does nothing can quite prepare you for the transition. It is huge, actually. And it's um, much uh, bigger a transition than I would have thought. Because I thought, as you say, I've been in government uh, 11-odd years, taking on some pretty big roles, I think it's fair to say. Within government, there's no shortage of a national profile, uh, even. But it is completely different in how it changes your life. But also just how you... how you um, Your day-to-day uh, job and, and, and uh, how you have to try to navigate uh, the political landscape. So it doesn't matter what position you're in. I was Cabinet Secretary for Health, as you know, uh, during a pretty challenging uh, period uh, indeed. No matter how challenging or difficult the decision was that you had to make, it was always the backstop of the First Minister. You could go into the office, have five, ten minutes, have that conversation, run something past uh, Nicola and go, right, OK, that's the right decision to make. I am the backstop. And yeah. um, you know, people come to me and you've got to be absolutely all over the detail of every single brief uh, in government. And you've got to trust your, your team. And, and for politicians, most of us are control freaks, uh, frankly. And you know, just having to let go of a little bit of that control and making sure uh, that your team are empowered uh, to make decisions um, and the right decisions. Uh, yeah, that's a bit of a bit of a transition. Quite a change. Quite a change, and then your life changes entirely. Yeah. I mean, I remember. I mean, it was, the, the result was on the the twenty seventh, wasn't it, of, of, of March, mm-hmm. on the Monday in Murrayfield. Got the result, and you know, spoke to my family, and then oh, I need to go to the loo, and they came out, and there's two security guards there. I'm like, <laughs> are you for me? <laughs> like, and and they've not left my side since. Really? And and it's a completely different. Uh, way of of living. I mean, um, those uh, who have kids will know, uh, or you may be better than I am as a parent, but um, making plans with kids can be quite challenging. It's a bit last minute, Mm. Um, but you can't really be last minute because your security needs to know where you're going, what you're doing. Just having a trip to the park has suddenly become a lot more complicated. So yeah, there's a whole adjustment that I could talk for hours, I won't, but I could talk for hours about how life has completely um, changed. I suppose as part of that as well, do you, do you feel like you are leading the SNP at the most difficult time in its history? Certainly one of the most difficult periods. I, 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 struggle, I struggle to think of a more difficult time, but there, there have been challenges. I was talking to a member, uh, one of our members of the Scottish Parliament, has been in the SNP for a long, long time, almost, um, almost four decades, uh, she was telling me. And she did say, look, we have come through tough times before. And I, I remember, you know, John Swinney's leadership and, 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 and difficult times then. Um, I wasn't in the party uh, and don't remember more difficult times in the, in, in the 70s and 80s. But certainly we've had difficult times. But uh, this is without a doubt some of the most challenging months the party has faced. And 
to be frank, we don't know what the future uh, holds either, and it could be more challenging before it gets before it gets easier. Just on that, I mean, <clears throat> challenging times in the party, no doubt. But before 2007, the SNP had never been in government, mm -hmm. never won a national election. So the opportunity to affect change, the opportunity to chart a different course is there, and it's of your making if you choose it. Absolutely. And that's the exciting part. People ask me time and time again, um, you know, for the, almost every day in the 130-odd days that I've been uh, First Minister of Scotland, they say to me, you know, if you knew what, what was coming, you know, would you still have done it? You know, do, do you really enjoy it? And my answer to that is absolutely, because you do not get the chance many times in your life, I suspect never more than once, to be First Minister of Scotland. And it's a huge honour, as well as a massive opportunity. For those of us, and I suspect this, everybody in this room, love our country, the opportunity to lead it for however long, years and years, months, I don't know if you outlive the lettuce, I don't know, whatever <laughs> it is, however long you have, to be able to make that change uh, at this level, on this scale, uh, to me is such a massive opportunity. Shape the direction of the country, achieve something huge. And my, mm. uh, my desire, of course, is, is, is for Scottish independence to achieve uh, one of the biggest things I think our country will experience in hundreds of years. We'll get to that for sure, for sure. I want to ask you about something that was happening today. This is Sir Keir Starmer's visit to uh, Rutherglen and Hamilton West. It's fair to say, is it not, that it's Keir Starmer's by-election to lose at this point? Well, I mean, Labour have, have practically kind of put up the bunting and, and uh, kind of popped the champagne corks already. They're talking not about winning the by-election. They're talking about by, by what margin they're going to win uh, the by-election. So they're, they're, they're extremely, well, I would say complacent, uh, if I'm honest. And, and I don't think they should be. I mean, I've spent many, many weeks, in fact, months now, knocking doors in Rutherglen and Hamilton West. And it's, of course, going to be challenging, mm. given the circumstances of Margaret Ferrier, given the circumstances uh, of the party. It's going to be difficult. Um, but I'm certainly not despondent or without uh, hope at all. I mean, our vote uh, is strong, but it needs a reason to come out and to make sure it votes uh, for us. And there will be uh, tactical voting in a seat that's often changed hands between ourselves uh, and Labour. But uh, yeah, Labour are, 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 I think, complacent, and that's a dangerous place to be. I was just thinking, Hamza, when you said about you know one chance to lead. So I, I, it would probably be a fair uh, analysis of certainly the 2016 to 2021 government, that it was, it was competent but managerial, might not have been particularly radical. Um, you've obviously entered at a pretty difficult time in terms of getting through the noise that's going on and getting your own vision there. Is, the, is, is there something in the background there? Are you ready to be radical? Because Scotland has a lot of problems now that it didn't have in... 2016, some that are needing quite urgently fixed. I mean, and I think people would forgive you for holding back a bit because of everything that's been going on. But is it ready? Is it there? Maybe even after the general election, as you run up to Holyrood, to say this is what Yusafism is. This is what I am now. I'm just not a continuation of what's gone on before. I've actually got a new and better idea. Yeah, but, Don't I mean, call it euphemism. Yeah, yeah. For that reason, we're trying to get Jeffology. Yeah, Jeffology. We're trying to get Jeffology. Euphemics. I'm not sure. No, it quite works. <laughs> I, I, I think. I think uh, two things. Uh, one, the cut through point is a really important one. Uh, it's been one of the biggest challenges. Let's be. Let's be frank. In the in the first, as I say, few months of the role, and really, <laughs> you talked about not swearing, so I'll do my best here. Thank but. 
you know, I, I, I remember the first, you know, first couple of weeks of, of being first, not even first couple of weeks, first few days of being first minister. Obviously, there's a lot of ceremony you have to go through. Uh, and, 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 and it was a great honour to be part of that ceremony in terms of courts, session, the vote in parliament, etc., etc. Um, and we thought, like, we get ourselves to Easter recess. And that's the point where you've got two weeks, no parliamentary business. You'll go out there. Everybody's dead interested in what some of these have got to say. We go out there. We had a whole, whole policy platform. Here's visits that we're going to do uh, to talk about X, Y, and Z. A really good visit for the first day. It was in the northeast talking about just transition. Additional funding announced for that. Second day, Peter Murrow gets arrested. <laughs> that's it. They're blown out of the water you know, for the next two weeks, if not longer, actually, mm. but certainly that two-week period. Okay, we've got another opportunity, policy prospectus. This is your document. This is what you're going to deliver. It takes you up to 2026. Colin Beatty gets arrested. That, that day in part. On that yeah, day. Yeah, it was. On yeah. that day. And so getting cut through, I'm getting scared about what happened to PFG, uh, right enough, but uh, when we go back for programme for government. But it is one of those ones where cut through and trying to get cut through, I think, has mm. been one of the, the, the biggest challenges. Yeah. Terms of being bold, being radical, uh, absolutely. What I've... I suppose what you've also got to do as a, as a leader is try to play to your strengths. Mm. So where are your strengths? Where are your weaknesses? Understanding those. I think my strengths have often been trying to bring people with us on a journey, trying to listen to even those voices that will oppose us. I've been spending a lot of time these last few weeks and months listening to people that would naturally be aligned to us. In fact, some of them actually openly hostile. Meeting with them, hearing from them, okay, you may not agree with me and my politics, certainly might not agree with independence, but you know what? You're a wealth creator, you're a business man, woman, uh, you're an innovator. Let's hear what you've got to say. Yeah. What can we do better? And I think that's, that's the t well, as I say, uh, you'll, you'll find out in a couple of weeks' time in terms of the programme for government, uh, the, the, the vision that um, I hope, to, and the direction... Just I hope tell us now if you want. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> as an exclusive. We're happy to listen. Uh, yeah. uh, good. Thank you very much. Right, we've got lots to get through. As you know, you can submit questions. You can do that even now as you're listening to the podcast as well. Um, this is all about you being able to ask Hamza Yusuf, the First Minister, questions and hearing conversation as a result. Uh, Will Searle, are you here, Will? Good evening, Will. Uh, thank you for submitting your question. Um, and by the way, you might have noticed if you tried to submit a question, there is a little box in there for you to add a compliment about the podcast. Because as you know, when, when you do that... Pardon? Can I, can I say a compliment about me if you wish? I don't oh. get many of them. We didn't add that box uh, on the form. Oh. We're never going to read out that, mate. Uh, <laughs> uh, as you know, if you compliment the podcast, you're more likely to get your email read out. Uh, Will, you had an interesting one about, um, about the by-election and about the kind of battle that's going on as well. If you want to stand up, feel free. If you don't, you feel free to sit down. It's your Where's podcast. I'm going to my question down. Uh, well, I can give you a compliment because... Your amazing ability to keep a straight face whilst you're asked about 50-year-old Karens and Mary Black was amazing the other day. Well done for that. <laughs> it was a daft question, so well done for keeping a straight face. Thank you. Uh, compliment for the podcast, though. Oh, You've given me a yeah. new podcast claim to fame because back in 2007, I started working for the Tory party. It's only five years. I've gone past Did you that. try to abolish it too? <laughs> <laughs> I, I was sort of on that team, yeah. Right. Um, See? But See? When I started, <laughs> You're onto something. When I started working for the Tories in 2007, one of the things I had to, to clean out in the Tory office when I first started was from the old election candidates back in May 2007. There's a guy called Andy McKeever cleaned out loads of materials. Different class. Yeah, different class. Different League class. of his own. Sorry. Yeah. What's your question, Will? More election. So, the upcoming by-election will be a straight fight between Labour and SNP, but it poses an interesting fight between the Tories in London versus Edinburgh. 
We need to talk about more Tory infighting, right? That's always fun. So Edinburgh will want the SNP to win, as it gives them a better chance of holding on to seats in Scotland. But Rishi Sunak will surely... Sorry. Uh, yeah. Will Edinburgh um, want Labour to win? Edinburgh want Labour. Edinburgh want Labour to win, but yeah. London will want the SNP to win. So how do you think Rishi Sunak's going to try and tip the scales, and do you think he can do that? And do you know, let's get a quick response from Andy. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, the... The quick response for that is that, um, in many ways, the Conservative and Unionist Party is actually two different parties. So um, the vast majority of Tory MSPs here uh, are here not to be in government or to win, but purely to stop India F2, stop the SNP from winning majorities. They are unionists largely, more than they are Conservatives. They're not particularly interested in ideology. They're interested really just in uh, ultra-unionism, I suppose, if you want to call it that. So they will always want Labour to beat the SNP. Um, uh, Sunak will be looking at a numbers game more than anything else and trying to arrest uh, momentum. Um, so uh, this tension has always been present uh, in the Tory party. Um, and I, I think your analysis is probably right. I think if you said to Douglas Ross, who do you fancy winning? He'd privately probably say, Labour, thanks. And if you asked <laughs> no, Sunak, he'd say SNP. Not so, not, not so privately. I mean, Douglas Ross has pretty much said to his Conservative uh, supporters... Uh, you should vote for Labour. You should vote for the party. I mean, he, he, London slapped them down. Yeah, uh, for that. But he, been there before. He's not. He's not really said it privately. Yeah, he's not. He's not said it privately. It's so interesting to talk about the by-election, Jeff. I know that you've been sort of analysing the yeah, by-election I mean, context. <laughs> I heard what you said earlier on, Hamza, and to a certain extent, I agree. But the problems with the SNP and the following of the SNP happened before your election as first minister. Uh, and my own company con conducted a poll. Uh, towards the end of last year, which started to show an emerging trend that the SNP vote was on the slide. And I wonder if you really appreciate the gravity of the situation facing you electorally. So there's been five by-elections, local by-elections, different parts of the country um, uh, since the turn of the year. The first one, just before you took office, uh, although the SNP won it, there was a 9% swing against. S uh, and that was in Aberdeen to the Labour. And the 20th of June, we had a 13% swing to Labour in Bells Hill. In July the 8th, we had the SNP vote down 8%, third place behind the Tories. Now, the other two, you weren't competitive in anyway, but you've won one out of five. And on those swings that I've just mentioned, you're in for a tough time in Rutherglen. And you might be in for a tough time in the general election. So why do you think people are not either turning out for the SNP or why are they not voting for the SNP when they are turning out? Yeah, so, I mean, you could spend, literally, and we won't, obviously, but you could spend the whole podcast talking about a variety of issues. So there is, of course, the natural laws of politics of being 16 years in, in government uh, and people will, uh, of course, uh, find something that they disagree with that hasn't gone right and, and of course, our political opponents rightly. So if I was in their position, I would do the same, uh, jump, jump all over it. So there is 16 years of, of, of government and, and there is some uh, fatigue and you've got to, as Andy was suggesting, you've got to sound bold, uh, radical. Uh, we've got to make sure people have a reason to vote for us. And I think people genuinely are crying out for some sort of vision, some sort of leadership, because they see a lack of it, frankly, in, in, in politics right across uh, the UK, and we should be able to deliver that. The second reason is there's just no getting away from it. The, the difficulty of the police investigation, you're right, there were some challenges before of a different scale uh, now, and there's no doubt that the police investigation has had cut, cut through. Uh, I told you a moment ago I've, I've knocked... How many doors? And uh, you know, it's not the number one issue. Cost of living crisis is still the issue that comes up most often, um, but it comes up often enough. And there's no doubt that people 
are questioning, and I've had this literally said to me quite a number of times, okay, you guys are the same as them. And, and that's challenging for us. Uh, and again, we're not in control of that, and, and the police investigation will unfold in the way it's going to unfold. Uh, for me, um, I think there's also uh, got, there's got to be a reason to vote for the SNP. And one of the big messages uh, that we are uh, going hard on, and we will do in, in, in the by-election, is that is the closer Keir Starmer aligns himself with Conservative policies, be it today calling, you know, uh, talking about a fairer way to implement the rape clause or uh, retaining the two-child cap, not scrapping the bedroom tax, we'll continue to say that actually the real alternative for people in Scotland is not going to be voting for Labour. Um, the real alternative for Scotland is to choose its own future as an independent country. The difficulty in all of that is people need to know how will we get there. Um, so, look, I, 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 there, this, you don't have to tell me the numbers, the facts, the figures. Trust me, I uh, live and breathe uh, those numbers and have uh, many uh, a challenging sleepless night uh, thinking about how we uh, arrest ourselves from what is a difficult situation. But I also remind ourselves, the point that Callum was making, has there ever been a more difficult time for the SNP? I struggle to remember it. But we still lead in virtually every single poll. Now, that's not to be complacent, um, but that is to say we still have a solid base of support. Can I just follow up then? <clears throat> you and I met each other recently, had a great chat. And I'm not going to reveal the, the contents of all that conversation because this is oh, a Jeff, family on. show. <laughs> it's all minutes, isn't it? But there's one thing I did say to you, I hope you don't mind me saying, you know, I said, look, you get one shot at this. Mm. One shot at this. Don't look back in 18 months' time and go, I wish I'd done this, I wish I'd said that. Yeah. Now, if I was to characterise your first period opening period as First Minister, whether it's been the highly protected marine areas, whether it's been the deposit return scheme, whether it's been trying to mollify EPC and boiler systems, whatever the issue is, it seems to me that you're trying to find the path to least resistance. You're trying to appeal to everyone. You're trying to not piss off everyone. And when you do that, you don't appeal to anyone, in my experience. So you mentioned the programme for government and, you, and, and Andrew mentioned you going forward and trying to put a usivism on it. Are we going to get more conviction? Because I know how much this job means to you. Yeah. I know how much it means to you. But I don't think they know. Yeah. And I don't think the people on the ground know. So when are you yeah. going to introduce yourself to them? And, and that's exactly what the programme for government... And to an extent, we're trying to do this summer. But you have to... When you come into the role, as I have, and there are issues that are dominating, bubbling away, causing challenges, there is a bit of a need to sometimes... It's not entirely clear the decks, but there is a need to have to say, right, there are some issues here that need dealt with. The alcohol advertising was a classic example. I mean, uh, no apologies at all for saying that I believe that we have to tackle Scotland's uh, problem, uh, uh, problematic relationship with alcohol. And the made-to-be-measured campaign, Mark and I from Scottish Whiskey Association, were just talking about how we can do that uh, collaboratively together. But the alcohol advertising uh, uh, consultation, the disinformation around it was causing such concern about things we were never going to do. So there's a need to sometimes... Uh, clear the decks uh, of, of certain problematic issues. But you're absolutely right. You, you kind of hit the nail on the head, me as a politician, but I think most politicians ultimately, at our heart, end up being people pleasers because we think, well, what gets us the most votes? Because we please that side and please that side and bring everybody together and that'll hopefully get us, you know, it's good for the country anyway uh, in terms of a, a way of progressing. But actually, you know, it could be electorally uh, quite, uh, quite, quite uh, helpful uh, as well. But... You absolutely, as a leader, as a first minister, you have to have conviction 
and choose a side. Frankly, there's a, you have to. Do you to. feel you've chosen a side? And, and a lot of issues, but there's a number of issues where, again, in the programme for government, it will be completely clear. And if I gave you one example or one issue, you know, I think the biggest existential issue our planet faces, and that's one of the climate emergencies. Mm. And, you know, you, you can't kind of sit on the fence. You can't be mealy-mouthed about it. You have to pick a side. And I know what side I'm absolutely on. In a time where, you know, the Prime Minister... Uh, hold on, Jeff. You, you have plenty sorry, to say sorry. all the time. You I never do stop this all talking. the time. I know, all I know, time. I know. You know, in a, in a time where literally this summer... I don't think I've ever seen a summer where every single week we've seen with such visibility the impact of the climate emergency right across the world. And we've got our Prime Minister literally saying that he's on the side of the motorist, sitting in Margaret Thatcher's old Rolls Royce and making it a wedge issue. Now you've got Keir Starmer saying we're going to roll back on ultra-low emission zones. This is a time for politicians to take more action on tackling the climate emergency, not less action. So, mm. yes, I will be choosing sides because that's what you have to do. And frankly, that's going to piss off some people. So you've said it... So well, well, no, but hold on a second. You've just said pissing off people and picking sides. But I don't... I'm, I'm my analysis and... You will disagree with this, no doubt. But on the issues that I mentioned, all those issues, you sought to nullify them, amend them, try and make sure that you didn't... And we'll come to the Greens, I'm sure, and you are sitting in a green cushion, by the way. I thought you'd want my one, <laughs> the yellow. But you didn't so much take a side. You could have come in and said, you know what, I've got my feet under the table, I'm in Butte House, and gone, nah. Not, this is not good enough. We're going to reverse all this. I made a virtue of it. Get up to a lectern. Make a big speech to the nation and say, not happening, not happening, not happening. We're going to move forward with my agenda, which is X, Y, and Z. And we're still waiting to hear yeah, the X, Y, and Z. But you didn't get the benefit. What I'm saying is political capital that you could have got from those first few days in office, from cancelling all those policies, you didn't get the benefit for it. No, so, part, so, so there's many policies that I think, you know, in the initial days went straight into going, right, we need to resolve and try to make progress on those issues. So DRS, you know, a classic example where we heard from the industry, we said, OK, I think Mark was at that first meeting we held, held with all the stakeholders around the table. And we said, right, we're going to delay, delay, we're going to do this, we're going to make changes, we're going to tweak. And then, of course, we had the UK government take the action that they take. And, and so, yes, there's some things we can absolutely, and I can absolutely do as First Minister. I'm also, unfortunately, uh, at the mercy of a UK government uh, that is, is flexing its muscles in, uh, in a way that is trying to undermine uh, that parliament building just uh, a mile or so uh, away from here. But you're right. I, I think, ultimately, there's not actually much disagreement. My challenge has been cut through in the first few, first few months. Programme for government, I really hope, gives me the opportunity to say, this is what I stand for, and the administration that I lead... The government that I lead, this is what we stand for. Got you. We're going to get a question from Sam Taylor in just a sec. Put your hand up, Sam, and uh, we'll get a microphone to you. Just on taking aside, uh, First Minister, especially on um, environmental issues, should Bailey Gifford be sponsoring the Edinburgh International Book Festival? It's led to lots of authors walking out. They're protesting their connections to and got every right oil to. and gas. Yeah, they've got every, every, every right to. But I know for a fact that we would not have an Edinburgh Inter International Book Festival if it wasn't for sponsors like Bailey Gifford. That's fine. Uh, and, and and others. No, I think they've, they've been on a journey. Uh, and if we're going to be absolutely binary about it and say, look, uh, you know, only companies that have no investment whatsoever in fossil mm. fuels, they're the only... That's taking a side. That's taking a stand, the only one. Well, actually, you what, you could, what you could say, taking a stand, is what you could say is, well, one, we support the arts because they're really important to Scotland. But secondly, when it comes to Bailey Gifford, are they on the journey? Are they going in the right direction? Do they have a commitment to de-invest? And they absolutely do. And they've shown that uh, and, and, and demonstrated uh, that. Okay. 
So you support that? You're happy with them sponsoring the festival? Well, look, I, I, as I said, I don't think we would have an Edinburgh International Book Festival if we didn't have Bailey Gifford and others supporting. So I think these things are absolutely a judgment call for the festival to make. Mm. Uh, but ultimately, if they're on the, the journey to disinvest, uh, de de-investing, uh, disinvestment, sorry, mm. uh, in terms of fossil fuels, then I think that's a good thing. Sure. Uh, Hollywoodsources.com forward slash ask if you want to submit your question. Uh, Sam did that. Sam, hello. Um, thank you for your compliment. Essential listening for Scottish politics nerds. Thanks very much. We'll take that, Sam. What's your question? <laughs> so, um, when the economic prospectus paper was published last October, uh, it did not include a fiscal plan uh, for independence. Uh, so there was no information about what would happen to public spending in an independent Scotland, no information about what would happen to taxes in an independent Scotland. If you want the next general election to be about independence, and I, I think you do... Will you commit to publishing a proper fiscal plan before that election? So uh, it's definitely something we're looking at. It's actually something that an organisation called Believe in Scotland, uh, heard by Gordon McIntyre Kemp, were pushing us on, uh, pushing me on actually in the early days that I uh, took office. And I think it's, an, it's a, uh, a suggestion that comes from every side uh, of uh, the debate on, on, on independence. So we should absolutely give as much information as we possibly can around what we would do, frankly, what would the balance sheet look like, what tax levers would we have, how would we use them, etc., etc. That can only be done in a certain point in time, though, uh, which is challenging. But I take the premise and accept the premise that if we want people to have a fully formed debate and, and want to make a fully informed choice on independence, the more information we can give them on what the fiscal and economic outlook of the country would be with independence, I think, is absolutely important. So it's something where, and I am very actively considering. <coughs> I mean, I think it's probably fair to say that uh, in 2014 first independence referendum, um, and I think polling would back this up, and I think pollsters would back this up, that if there's one thing that stopped you getting over the line, it was the perceived lack of a, of a vision uh, of a plan for uh, the economy of Scotland after independence. Um, I don't think that's changed at all, if I'm being honest, since 2014. I haven't seen anything coming forward really from government to create a credible economic strategy and to show people how they will be better off in independent Scotland than they would in the UK. And, you know, I operate in the SME community in particular every day, um, and I know there are a lot of centrists, a lot of relatively non-partisan people, which I would include myself, to be honest, who are not... Um, emotionally or ideologically opposed to the concept of independent Scotland, but simply couldn't do it because it's too risky. Yeah. Um, and it hasn't been de-risked with what they would see as sensible uh, economic policy and economic strategy. And the truth is the only person they've heard that from is Kate Forbes during the leadership election. I mean, that, you do hear that, people say that, uh, a lot of unionists found it refreshing at that point. Um, is it in your mind that in order not just for the SNP to continue to win, but in order to create the foundation to have any chance of independence? Because, I mean, you're at least 10 points away from really even thinking about being able to be certain about winning. Uh, where is the economy in that for you? The, the economy is absolutely central because there's no getting away from the fact that you don't have to... Uh, go to a pollster to know where we lost the last independence referendum. You know, there was many issues, currency, 
being one of them, uh, the economy more generally, fiscal and monetary policy. Um, and for me, what will shift the dial on independence, and this is not just for the economy, this is across a range of areas, is if we are giving people a reason to vote for independence. Now, what has changed since 2014, uh, we have seen a significant decline in terms of the UK and its eco economy and, and, and generally, actually, a UK in, in, in decline, uh, particularly post-Brexit. Post it's fascinating because the UK was on a decline before it entered into the European community. Now, having left in 2016 uh, or uh, since the referendum, uh, has seen that further uh, decline. So this argument of a broad shoulders of the United Kingdom, you know, the UK being an economy uh, you can rely on, I think that's been shattered to pieces. What we haven't done enough of done it to a certain extent in terms of the economy paper. Uh, what we have to do is have a much more powerful message of how an independent Scotland can use those levers. And we talk about levers, but people want to know well, what does it actually mean and how do you use them in an independent Scotland to grow wealth, to create jobs, uh, to make sure that you unleash in its entirety the potential of this country and for it to be competitive. And I often say to folk, you look at European countries of our size across Europe um, compared, compared to the UK, and they have higher productivity. They have more wealth. They have fewer people in poverty. Why on earth not Scotland? They're also 100% committed to capitalism and economic growth. Uh, I mean, if you go to leaders in Scandinavia... I'm not, say, I'm not a communist. It's, uh, no, no, it's, I know. OK, so that's fine. But if news I, for you an exclusive. There's your headline. But if, if, and, if, economic, and economic growth. I've, I spoke about it in my very first speech in Parliament. I've got it actually in our writing policy, that down, <laughs> policy, <laughs> policy prospectus. So yeah. uh, there's no uh, question about believing in economic growth for a purpose. And I believe that purpose is, of course, to create wealth, it's to uh, generate jobs, it's to expand the tax base, but to do that for a purpose that you can reinvest into our public services, uh, whether that's targeted uh, towards those who need it the most, whether it's through universal benefits that are rights that people, uh, I think, should absolutely have, uh, or, or it's to, 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 as I say, tackle uh, anti-poverty, uh, to tackle poverty and uh, to, to invest in uh, anti-poverty measures. There is, it is there for a purpose, but I'm not arguing with you about economic growth, and, and I'm not sure why people think it's such a big surprise that the SNP believes in well, economic I, growth. So I think there's two, two reasons why I think they think it's a surprise. One, the Green Party, right, and that there is palpable worry about that in the business community. Um, and two, some of the policies have not lent themselves towards a belief in economic growth, tax increases. We'll maybe talk about rent freezes because it's a particular issue um, which is causing on-the-ground concern. So I don't think the policy platform has helped uh, with the perception that you are a government that does believe in economic growth. I mean, a you know, 100,000 properties freed from rates because of the Scottish business, uh, small business uh, bonus scheme that we've introduced, still benefiting uh, from that. There's a, a number of policies I could point to that literally uh, stop businesses from going under. And maybe there's a job for us to do in the Scottish Government, having been uh, in, in position and in power for 16 years, to actually remind people of what we've done. But also, yeah, let's, it's your challenge to, to, to me at the beginning of this podcast. What's the vision going to be in programme for government? Certainly, you know, that's why for me, in the first few months, getting the new deal for business over the line was so, so important. In a matter of weeks, literally resetting that relationship with business. We're talking about independence. Um, let's get a question from Nairn Clark, who I hope is here somewhere. Nairn's down here. Uh, Nairn's compliment, by the way. I don't like reading these out. I just feel I should. 
That, that Callum guy sure does a stellar job of hosting and moderating. Oh, come on. Thanks, Nairn. <laughs> he, he doesn't actually do anything. <sighs> I do read the emails. I check the inbox. And Nairn knows that, and he's gaming the system. Who shows you think this is exactly? He's gaming the system. Uh, Nairn, thanks for submitting questions. Thanks for being here. Your question is about independence and the strategy. I might need your help with it. I deleted it off my phone by mistake. Here so. it is. <laughs> Here it is. Well, Nair, nice I, to meet you. You can have a seat again. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> Nairn's email. Hi, Hamza. First name terms. I hope you're okay with that. My question is, what happens if your plan regarding independence fails? The SNP are not successful in the general election next year, as the party do not win a majority of votes or seats or whatever your criteria happens to be. Where would that leave the independence movement? And how do you reconcile your position as party leader and first minister with that result, having put a vote on Scottish independence to the people and lost? So first of all, I don't like to hypothecate on loss. Uh, I think it ends up becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy. And that's why uh, we are absolutely confident of winning the election and general election, whatever it may be. Which, to be clear, uh, means winning the most Scottish seats at Westminster. Yeah, exactly, Fine. winning the most Scottish seats. So I'm confident in that position. And as I say, there's a heck of a lot of complacency uh, from Labour on that, and we're not going to show uh, an, an iota of that uh, complacency at all. We're going to work as hard as we possibly can. There is no getting away from the fact that there is just no shortcut if the UK government continues to deny us the referendum. And kind of Andy's point a moment ago when he was talking about you know, you're 10 points away from winning it. I don't think winning it actually is the most difficult part. Getting a referendum is the most, most difficult part. I think actually once we have it, we have the arguments uh, absolutely to win it. I only see it going in, 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 in one direction uh, in terms of that referendum. Now, the, what we have to do if the UK government, red or blue, whoever's in number 10, if they continue to deny and deny and deny, the only way we're going to be able to break that logjam is through the power of the people. There's no other way. There's no magic shortcut. There's nothing that you can suddenly do. There's no uh, regulation or law that we can pass that suddenly it changes things overnight. It's going to have to be through the power of the people. And that's where actually the argument uh, is, is right from, from Andy, from others, that we have to shift the dial considerably. Um, we can't be at kind of 40, anywhere between 45 and 52% or 53%. We're going to have to shift the dial considerably in order for people power to say, we are not going to accept a continued denial from Westminster. That's the only way to do it. But you have to if do that was... before the next general election, according to your strategy. What I'm saying is the general election is an opportunity to demonstrate, to demonstrate that people power. Now, the UK government, of course, they will continue and try to continue to deny, but they can only do that for so long. They can only deny me for so long. They can't deny the people of Scotland. I don't think they can deny the people of Scotland uh, if there is that people power right behind uh, the movement. But the most difficult message I have to deliver the party and had to deliver during our convention is just being really open and honest that if the UK government continues to deny a referendum, there is not a shortcut there. We're going to have to use every single opportunity to put this question to the people of Scotland to demonstrate the level of support we have. I was going to try and get in, but Jeff's going to kill me. He's got his eyes on the prize. I, I, talk me through this. I know you were given a terrible hand by your success, and I have huge respect, as you know. Predecessor. Uh, predecessor, sorry, predecessor. We're not into successors yet. Yeah, I hope not. Uh, 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 good, well picked up. Um, <laughs> Your predecessor, and I have great respect for your predecessor, but that strategy, to my opinion, put you in all sorts of difficulty. 
how does this work in practice? We've got a battle between who's going to be the future UK Prime Minister, Keir Starmer, Rishi Sunak, Labour or Tory. Are we going to be the SNP going into that election saying, and here's our policy on lender of last resort. Here's how we're going to take forward a Scottish currency. Here's how we're going to afford people's pensions. Because we have, by definition, made that our pitch to the people. Because if we're asking for a mandate for independence, you have to therefore fight on independence. I'll tell you what the pitch is with independence. It's actually pretty simple. It's the number one issue that comes up every time I knock a door, whether it's in the North East whether it's in Glasgow, whether it's in Rutherglen Hamilton, whether it's where I'm going to be uh, in the next couple of days in the south of Scotland, I can tell you the number one issue that keeps coming up and will keep coming up is the cost of living crisis. So I can say to somebody clearly in the doorstep and say, look, your alternative is not a Westminster that's red, where the Labour Party and Sir Keir Starmer wants to keep those measures of austerity, they're keeping you in poverty, they're increasing your bills... That, you know, not scrapping the two-child limit, not scrapping the bedroom tax, not scrapping the rape clause, is aligning himself and will continue, I suspect, my prediction is he'll continue to align himself more and more with Conservative policies. Your real alternative is actually voting for independence, taking the decisions into your own hands. That's the message that I'll take to every single doorstep. And if we win the election <coughs> on that unequivocal, on page one, line one of the manifesto, that a vote for the SNP is a vote for independence... Then, then, of course, if the, if the people send that message loudly and clearly, that gives us, I believe, a mandate but, to, but to negotiate we, uh, how we put that into democratic effect. And there's not a shortcut, Jeff. If there was a shortcut, I know there's then a... people would have figured it out, I'm oh, afraid, long, long time ago. I've uh, said on the podcast here. previously, I wouldn't even fight it at the 2024 election. I put it to the 2026 election at the touch and this one's standing up for Scotland, but that's just me. Here we are. Now, how you, but you've said this, though, and, and I really want to tease this out because you and I have been around enough election campaigns to know that you're going to be on a TV debate. Bernard Ponson will be at STV. Um, Glenn Campbell, we wish him all the best uh, for BBC. They're going to be fighting about cost of living crisis. And then Glenn Campbell could legitimately turn around to you and say, and what currency are they going to be paying that in? And we will say what we've said on the currency already, that we will keep the Scottish... Do you we think will that's going to appeal to well, a voter what, what, in this context? What will appeal to the voter... The, appeal, what, there's 100 people in this room. Does it appeal to you by way of applause? Is that appealing? Well, what, will, what I think will appeal the to silence, people... silence, First Minister. Yeah, well, look, what, what will appeal to people... And look, I, I will try to persuade as many people in this audience, but I will take it to every doorstep in the country. What will appeal to people is that you can either have... you know conservative or conservative light policies. That is the choice that is in front of you if you choose to vote either conservative or for Labour. Or you can have an alternative, a real alternative, a bold, a radical alternative, which is taking decisions for yourself. And that is the alternative that we will present. So to, There's to also no getting away from the fact that general elections are for the SNP. They can be quite tough. There's a recent yeah. phenomenon post-2014 yeah. uh, where, where we have had the numbers that we have had. Uh, we traditionally, particularly in uh, so-called change elections where, where, where change is perceived, uh, they are difficult elections for us. So there's no getting away from the fact that 2024 uh, will be a difficult uh, a general election for us. But I'm, I'm up for the fight. Do you think you'll lose any seats? Again, I'm not, I'm not going to get into a numbers oh, game. Go on. I, no, I don't hypothesize. I don't want a number. I don't no, want no, a number. I, I, do you lose any? I don't go into the election thinking that we're going to lose seats. I go, I go into elections looking to win seats. Yeah, but see, that, but your question is the key here, right? So, well, first of all, I, I'm, I'm unconvinced about the um, Red Tories strategy. If you look at polling on the issues you've mentioned, for example, the two child crap and the bedroom tax, polling supports them. 
I think the reason they're controversial is because they're Tory policies, not because of the policies themselves. If it had been Labour policies all along, we would hardly talk about those policies, I don't think. So I'm not convinced that it might, might, it might cut through in the bubble, totally unconvinced it cuts through outside the bubble. But I think actually it's all moot, right? Because the, I would say the biggest issue that you have at elections is the high watermark. I mean, there have been two remarkable elections in the last, in both parliaments in the last elections. You're sitting on 48 seats at Westminster, 64 seats at Holyrood, both on about 45%. Mm-hmm. And it is, I'll answer your question, <laughs> yes, you're going to lose seats. And it won't be your fault, it's just the trend. And you're going to lose seats. And I think that is what's going to make the message of winning the election as a mandate my analysis would be that message is effectively impossible because if you don't retain the number of seats you've got, I don't think it will fly. And I think that's just... You'd have to go up another 6 7 8% in the next year to have a chance of retaining your 40 seats. So there's also, there's also uh, the point that uh, you know, a number of polls have shown that uh, although the SNP support uh, has dipped, support for independence is still pretty rock solid. It I mean, is. it fluctuates between, you know, sometimes above 50, sometimes below 50, but it's relatively rock solid. So for, uh, you know, putting independence front and centre of our campaign, actually, for independent supporters, it could be the thing that attracts them back but A lot of those independence voters, the they've shifted to the Labour Party, which you say is not cutting through uh, because of their support for Tory polls. Uh, they, have, they, are, they are now polling for, for uh, Labour. And, and for some, the attraction... Uh, of voting for Labour in a general election because people will perceive that as the best way to get rid of the Conservatives, which, again, I don't have any truck with. Because I think, you know, if you looked at other election results where Labour uh, have uh, have won, uh, actually it wouldn't have made a difference which way Scotland voted, even if we've all voted all for the same uh, political party. Uh, my message to, to the voters is, look, the, Conser- the Labour Party are moving uh, and, and will continue to move further and further towards the Conservatives. Let's make sure that Scotland's voice is not ignored. Even if you don't agree with everything the SNP does, the one thing you can't disagree with uh, often, uh, not many people will disagree with, is that we stand up for Scotland. Such you a, bang the drum for Scotland. That is such a tough message, though, Hamza, because it's, it's a very, tough message. If you're, if you're an ordinary person if, out there... If this can, was an easy job, then, no, know, uh, of course, uh, many people, I'm sure, would be lining up to, to take it. But if you're sitting not, in a seat a where Labour have got a chance of winning, it's really, really hard to say to that voter, actually... Don't vote Labour to get rid of the Tories when the entirety of the election campaign is framed around Starmer versus Sunak. It's a really hard message for you to have to give to say, actually, I know it looks like if you elect a Labour MP, that'll help cure Starmer. Actually, vote for us and we'll get rid of the Tories. Well, look, in, in, instead of, if you want to get rid of Conservative policies, don't vote for a Labour MP that supports them. Instead, actually make sure Scotland's voice is heard by voting for an SNP MP who will challenge those Conservative policies, who will challenge the two-child uh, cap or the bedroom tax or the rape clause. And actually, as a party, the SNP, a party that is uh, unapologetically pro-European as opposed to pro-Brexit, Labour Party, and, and you know, I, I, I disagree with your point about cut-through. I was in Rutherglen in Hamilton West. Uh, this was uh, not, not just a few days ago, about a week ago, actually, and, uh, you know, popped into a, you know, a computer shop. guy refurbished his laptops, been there for 20-odd years, and he was repeating verbatim what was on a leaflet. I don't think he'd even seen a leaflet, actually, but must have got it through the door. He was sitting there talking about the fact that Keir Starmer, to him, just sounds like uh, a conservative and he doesn't trust him and he's sceptical about him. And uh, he's a typical Rutherglen and Hamilton West voter. He votes sometimes SNP, sometimes Labour, sometimes SNP, sometimes Labour, and that seat changes hands. So I'm not nearly as despondent. I agree with you. The message is going to be tough uh, to, to, to 
to, to try to convince uh, voters, uh, particularly because of the challenges we're facing, and I suspect there's still some challenges uh, to come. Uh, but uh, look, I'm going to give it absolutely my best shot and make sure that we give people a true alternative to vote for whenever that general election is. Just moving on slightly on the independence argument, our former mutual boss, not Nicola Sturgeon, Alex Salmond, um, I'm going to preface this question by saying that I've said publicly and I've said to him directly, I've never really been a fan of the Alapa project. Uh, I said it to him before he did it and I said it to him after. But nonetheless, he has done that. Nonetheless, he has a platform and nonetheless, he has a fairly reasonable following. Now, you said in the election campaign, the leadership election campaign, that you wanted to unify the independence movement. Does that extend to an overture to Alex Salmond? Has he made an overture to you? Have you made one to him? So, uh, I will answer that question. Before I do, I, I find it difficult to understand somebody who says they really want to unify the independence movement and wants to stand, I think, on a Scotland United ticket um, in terms of the next general election, or even in Rutherglen and Hamilton West, and then calls the leader of the second largest pro-independence party a total idiot. You know, I don't, I don't think... You mean the Greens and Patrick uh, Harvey? The second largest political party, pro-independence party, the Greens, yeah, and that's what Alex Salmond said. Patrick yeah, Patrick Harvey. Yeah, he, yeah. You know, he insulted Patrick Harvey uh, in, in those exact terms. Mm. Um, and to me, that doesn't scream of unity or, or, or wanting to try to unite the independence uh, movement. And I've said this before publicly, and I'll say it uh, to Alex, and, and I've only met him very briefly at the... Winnie Ewing's memorial service, and we, we, we had a, a, a discussion and a, a bit of a chat and uh, spoke to Moira, uh, who was there uh, as well, because we do go back uh, a long, long way. Moira's his wife. His wife, yeah. uh, Moira as well, who was there. Um, but what I would say to Alex is, if you're really serious about you know, wanting the independence movement to come together, why is 90% of your political party's ammunition fired towards the SNP? Uh, that, to me, doesn't make any sense. So, uh, look, I, I've got some issues with... Uh, Alex's uh, past uh, behaviours and, and even, as I say, currently how he's aiming his ammunition uh, towards uh, the SNP. Um, but uh, there's not been, as far as I know, an overture uh, from him to to meet. And uh, to me, the party, although you say it's got a following, what most polls put it at 1%, yeah. maybe 2 So what, should he go a, away or should he rejoin the SNP? But he has a SNP. Well, is my point. I mean, he's still, he's still yeah, out there. Yeah. So much to my disappointment, I've told him to shut it's up. Not, it's not and to we, me. <laughs> he didn't listen. It's not really me to dictate what Alex Hammond should do. No, sure, but it would be a lot more helpful. That he's fragmenting the movement by throwing grenades at you guys and the SNP and indeed the Greens by extension. So then I'm confused about what you mean by fragmenting the movement if you don't mean he should work with you as part of the SNP. I'm happy for him to have his own party and right. have his pet project. I just, I'm not sure that the way you get independence is by firing all your ammunition towards the biggest independence vehicle in the country. And I think what's a shame in all of this is people in my position, and I'm not expecting small violins to come out here, but being First Minister, uh, the only people that really understand the job, I think, are those that have been in mm. the job. And, and look, I've, I've reached out before to people like Jack McConnell uh, on issues around been Malawi. Um, reached out to Henry McLeish we'll on issues on around uh, prison, uh, prison, prison reform. I remember reaching out to, he was, he was the Deputy First Minister, maybe First Minister for a period, wasn't he, Jim Wallace? I think Lord was for a brief period, I think. Uh, in the way that Harry Harman standing orders, he's right, you're right, standing orders. So, you know, reached out to Jim Wallace. Um, and, 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 you know, I'll speak to Nicola and, and, and so on. It would, have been, it would be 
it's, I think it's a shame that we don't yet. No, I have. Oh, you have. Sorry, sorry. I'm saying so it'd be a shame. Speak to her. No, no, I have spoken. Sorry, to her. I understand. It'd be a shame, you know, that Alex could and could have been that kind of elder statesman and and, and given advice and wise counsel and and it just doesn't seem like he's in. When that Jack was on the podcast, he suggested. Uh, when Jack McConnell mm-hmm. was on the podcast, he suggested a former first minister's WhatsApp group. Does that mean you're up for it? <laughs> I'm not a former first he's minister. Not. I'm a first minister. <laughs> 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 Intending to remain so. So thank you. I'll be out of that WhatsApp group. I think you should start a WhatsApp group with that fire. That'd be great. That's what we want to hear. Do you know, I'm bragging there about who we've had on the podcast, and we're all, you know, we genuinely are very grateful for you and for everybody that's been on taking part. Uh, two other people that have been on the podcast are Fergus Ewing and Kate Forbes. Both, big supporters of me. Both of whom I would just want to draw on. That's interesting you say that, because I'm not sure Kate Forbes ever been that critical of you. No, no, I was more meaning Fergus Ewing, I think. He's been, look, I think Fergus and Kate... Sorry, I'll let you get to your question. No, no, that's fine. But Fergus uh, and Kate, um, I think for Fergus in particular, again, I, I say this genuinely with, with a measure of sadness, that somebody coming into my position... I've known Fergus for many years. I've been in the SNP for almost 20 years. Mm. Actually, it's 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 those people that have experience, that could be the most constructive, helpful, offer-wise counsel, and do that in a way that is helpful to the party. Um, you, know, you can see it when Fergus stands up, makes his points. He's got every right to make them, of course he does. Uh, but he makes his points, be it First Minister's questions or doing parliamentary questions, the only people applauding are the Conservative Party, and that's not going to help our party uh, or help our, our, our movement. Kate and I, uh, you know, and, and, and people sometimes struggle to believe that we get along very well. And our kids got along uh, particularly well during uh, the hustings, the 19 hustings, I think, that we did. And our fam- families were dragged uh, across to. And you're right, she's not been uh, uh, terribly critical. Um, but I think for, for, for Kate, my regret really is I, I wish she'd come into government. And, uh, you know, I think you know, she's made that decision not to come in. I think there are other ways that we could use Kate and, you know, Andy mentioned the economy and there's no doubt she's got skills uh, in relation to the economy. Um, There's definitely roles there for Kate and and, and I'm certain we can... uh, And do you think she... uh, um, As soon as you won, actually, I wrote a column. I'm sure you read it, Fridays in the Herald. Hamza, I know you read it every week. Oh, Andy. Um, Every uh, week. Well, I I suggested that the sensible thing to do in terms of party unity and in terms of the country and and the overall message would be to make Kate DFM... And economy Deputy, and Deputy finance secretary, Deputy First Minister yeah. and economy. Do you think she would have taken that job if you had offered her it? So only Kate could answer uh, that question. But for me, there was two important factors. One, you have to have your finance secretary absolutely 100% aligned with your vision and what you're looking to do. And Shona was that person. She's absolutely aligned with what. What, what, we want what was to it do about Kate's vision around, that wasn't well, aligned? Again, she she had some challenges. You know, it was all played out during the election contest, but. There were some differences around progressive taxation, uh, for example. But also, I think for Kate, um, it is good to get experience of public service delivery roles as well as the finance secretary role, which is, of course, an important uh, one. But ultimately, Kate um, had her reasons, and and she has has articulated those uh, publicly of why she thought a period out of government would be best for her. Um, But I would never close the door to Kate being back in government if she uh, wanted to come back in, of course. She told the podcast uh, that when she went back to Parliament after the leadership contest, that she would extend the hand of friendship. And she said, and I'm quoting, I'm very happy to pick up where I left it with friends and colleagues last summer. That's always going to be a two-way street. So it remains to be seen whether the hand of friendship that I offer is reciprocated. 
Fergus Ewing told this podcast just a couple of weeks ago that the atmosphere among uh, uh, SNP MSPs is toxic at Holyrood. It doesn't sound like there are many hands of friendship being extended. So, again, I mean, I just don't recognise that toxic characterisation. I go to our group uh, regularly and speak to our group. Yes, of course, there's been... Uh, challenges uh, and uh, difficulties, particularly during uh, an election contest, a leadership contest, there's going to be that. But I don't recognise that uh, toxic um, atmosphere. Fergus may want to ask why there may be some in the group that are uh, frustrated at his interventions, but I think that's that's probably a pretty obvious question uh, to answer. So, uh, for Kate, uh, again, uh, I would hope that... Do you consider her a friend? Yeah, I consider Kate a friend, yeah. As I say, we, we travelled the country you, for, for uh, quite a number of weeks, and our families did, uh, and you get to know people uh, really well. And beyond the headlines, there's, you know, Kate's a person I respect. I, I think she respects me. Um, and uh, as I say, there is uh, always the doors open for Kate to be back in government, if that's something uh, that she wishes. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hollywood Sources is proud to be brought to you by the Scotch Whiskey Association's Made to Be Measured campaign. To become Scotch whisky, distilled spirit is carefully crafted before maturing in Scotland for at least three years, although it's often decades. That's why Scotch whisky should always be sipped, savoured and enjoyed responsibly. The Chief Medical Officer recommends that adults who choose to drink alcohol consume no more than 14 units per week. But Scottish Government research shows that two-thirds of Scots are not aware of those guidelines. The Made to Be Measured campaign seeks to build greater awareness of the responsible consumption guidelines and the units of alcohol contained in popular drinks. Scotch whisky, it's made to be measured. Find out more at scotch-whisky.org.uk forward slash made to be measured. Let's do another question. This one is from Jack Allen. Where are you, Jack? You're here. There's Jack there. By the way, Jack's compliment is just here. I feel I owe it to him. 
This is actually quite, this is quite a nice one. If it weren't for this podcast uh, and the football, me and my dad would have a lot less to talk about every day. So thank you. Aww. That's really nice, isn't it? Your podcast has provided hours of meaningful father and son bonding time. Which is very lovely. Thank you, Jack. And thank you yeah. for being here. Uh, what's your question for the First Minister? Yeah, uh, firstly, thank you for taking the question. It's Not really appreciated. Um, Hamza, listeners to the podcast, and um, it's a great podcast, um, have heard many politicians, as we just mentioned, uh, Kate Forbes, Fergus Ewing, um, mentioned that, um, you know, the party's approach to kind of pragmatic policymaking business and the coalition with the Greens um, is a point that they disagree with. Um, I think the Scottish public and people here um, just want a bit of realism, uh, a bit of pragmatism uh, and, you know, subject matters that impact their daily lives to be um, addressed properly um, and also without the kind of the answer always being independence. Um, and then, you know, I, I'm a business owner. Um, I started a business when I was at uni and I've grown it kind of throughout my 20s. Um, and I've heard from members of the kind of Scottish business community um, that you're a very kind of pragmatic, collegiate person when they meet you in private. Um, so to me, something doesn't add up. Um, what is it that you see in the kind of coalition with the Greens? Um, or, uh, and what is the polling, public opinion, things that you're hearing that make you honestly believe that that's going to be a successful um, strategy polling-wise? Because it doesn't add up to me. Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, there's so many... A lot of nods, by the way. Just for those who are listening at home, yeah. there's a lot of nods around the room right now. I don't know yeah. if you saw that. Yeah. 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 So, OK, uh, look, there's a few facets to that question which I'll try to peel off and, and answer if I can. So in terms of um, the, the, the coalition uh, with the Greens and what do you see... Actually, before I go to that point, the pragmatic issues the, or the everyday issues that affect people. I think one of the challenges for the SNP is if you were to ask people what is it the SNP um, talks about, what has the SNP government, the Scottish government, been uh, uh, focused on, a number of people would look at issues like the GRR, like trans uh, rights, for example, uh, gender recognition reform bill. And I'm a wholehearted supporter of it. I would vote for it again. Obviously, you know, I've challenged UK government section 35 uh, in court, and that will play out uh, over the coming weeks. But it's clear that people think that that is, and issues like identity issues and other issues are the ones that we obsess about and that will actually care about cost of living or public services or growing the economy. So I think there's a challenge in there for us to go, yep, passionate supporters of people's rights. I say that as a minority myself and somebody who's been you know, attacked, discriminated, abused on a, on a fairly regular basis because of his race. So I do think we should stand wholeheartedly, but we also have to communicate what it is we're doing for people in their everyday lives. And I think that's going to be a real, uh, is a real challenge for us. And what I tried to do in our policy perspectives, and you know, doesn't get always cut through given, given everything else that's going on, really focused on what we are going to achieve between now and 2026, and a real focus on delivery. And I think that's what people want to see, is that focus on delivery. In terms of uh, the Greens, we say a couple of things. First and foremost, uh, their glass over. first and foremost, I would say people I do think want to see political parties working together. I think they, they say it to me all the time. Like, I wish political parties, because some of you have, actually, you know, most political parties, they'll say, we'll have some good ideas that we'll agree on. So why can't you just get together and work together? And that's what we've got with the Greens. We've got two different political parties. Yep, we've got some policies in common. We've got some policies we don't agree with, hence why they're excluded from the Butte House Agreement. 
and we work together and what I think is the best interest of Scotland. There is also a, 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 a pragmatic political reason as well, because that parliament, I can tell you now, for the 12 years that I've been elected, is by far the most toxic I've ever been in. And we've all got responsibility to detoxify it as best as we possibly can. <laughs> there is no way I'm passing a budget that Douglas Ross is going to vote for or Anna Sauer, frankly, is going to vote for. It just ain't going to happen in a month of Sundays. And having that political stability, that majority in Parliament, to not just pass your budget, but your legislative programme, for me, is, is, is uh, I've often said, is worth its weight in gold. It absolutely is. Right. Jack, thank you for your question, first of all. There's lots to get into here. It's very topical. It's very prescient. Let's, first of all, ask you, will the Butte House Agreement still be intact come the 2026 election? Yes. It will? Yes. Fine. Good. Uh, do you accept that the Greens exert influence on the direction of the Scottish Government? They are part of the Scottish Government. Yes, so on they, the SNP they are, of the They Scottish are part government. of the Scottish Government, so there's no doubt that they exert influence. Right. If you're part Is it of the too government, much influence? Uh, no, I, I believe that they absolutely have influence. I think they push us to go further on certain issues, which is no further bad Further than thing. you'd like? No, further than, than, than perhaps we've committed to in our manifestos, perhaps further than we thought we would go to, not that's further odd, than we'd it? like. It's further than what's in your manifesto. That's no, jarring for voters. No, I don't, think that is, I don't think that is, because people want to see political parties work together. We have this agreement, uh, cooperation agreement. We were voted in as a minority government. We mm. have to accept that. Not far off a majority, but voted in as a minority government. So therefore, uh, the message is you should cooperate with other political parties to progress your political agenda and what, what, working with the Greens. What three words would you use to describe Lorna Slater? Uh, <laughs> I'm, not sure why, but I'm not sure why some in the audience, because Lorna, I'll come to the three words in a minute, mm. but Lorna uh, is somebody who faces... I mean, I see it, a lot of misogyny uh, in that parliament. And there's still a lot in there uh, in that parliament, uh, but somebody who works incredibly hard. So I would say she's absolutely hardworking. Uh, I would say she's diligent in terms of detail, and I would say she is incredibly compassionate in terms of her politics. Uh, we'll give you hard working as one word. word I think sometimes it's hyphenated, yeah. I suppose. Go on, Jeff. I thought that going back a few answers when you, you talked about the importance of the Greens, I, I thought your first part of your answer was excellent. People do want to see more collaboration across the parties um, and p parties working together. But where you lost me is when you start, uh, and I've heard this argument being articulated by a number of SNP ministers, and it bugs me something rotten. This idea that anyone out there cares about legislative processes and getting votes passed. Now, I cannot accept an argument whereby the Greens, for whatever reason, happen to be out with government and voted against your budget and essentially caused an election. The same Green Party that owe all of their recent success to the SNP's second vote and the regional vote. I cannot accept that. And I do think there is room for you to show more teeth, a little bit more robustness in the face of that. Because the perception, and as we both know, perception in politics is everything. Forget the reality. Perception is they're taking you lot for a ride. Well, so well, let, you, what are you going to do well, to try and arrest that perception? Let's remember we're the ones in the Scottish Government who have, for example, changed course in relation to HPMAs, and we hear the communities who spoke vocally about that. Uh, ultimately, again, before the UK government took action in relation to vetoing and torpedoing the DRS, it was me when I came in who said, right, we need to listen 
to a business community around the readiness of that scheme. So let's delay, let's make changes, let's bring, uh, let's listen to those business concerns uh, where, 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 where uh, they are absolutely legitimate. And for me, this point about people not caring around electoral process, I, I, I agree with that. But they do actually care if legislation is passed because it impacts them. So they may not care about the process, I accept that. But also, I suppose, thirdly, for those that do believe in independence, uh, like me, like you, having a pro-independence majority in Parliament, I think, is an absolute strength, not a weakness. I actually think, genuinely, this is more of a bubble story, I'm sorry to say. It does not get reference to me on many doorsteps. Comes up on occasion, for sure. Comes up to some people when I speak to them about the A96 in the North East. So it definitely comes up. But I have to say, it is not number one, number two, or number three issue, I'm afraid, that comes up time and time and time again. I, I, I can actually believe that last point, because I think, you know, NHS, cost of living and things will come up earlier. I, but if we go back, I mean, look, the Greens won the lottery without having to buy a ticket. It's what happened in 2021. Um, the, you know, as soon as Jackie Bailey won that seat... Let's, let's, let's be honest, if Jackie Bailey hadn't won that seat and you had 65, you wouldn't have spoken to them because you didn't need to. So this was not a decision to create a progressive alliance. It was a numbers game, right? And that's, that's the reason it came about. Well, we didn't but even think... have to speak to them because we have done minority government before. Mm -hmm. Some was Very quite successfully. successfully. <laughs> <laughs> and there was, there was a good chief of staff there by, at the by, time. By working we with... We managed to get all our budgets passed without that, the Greens. That's exactly the point yeah. I was about to make. <laughs> so, the, point, the point actually I was about to make was exactly <laughs> that. That if you think Douglas Ross is a McClatchy... <laughs> Or Annabel Goldie, or even a Ruth yeah, Davidson. Mm -hmm. I'm afraid he is absolutely not. I agree with you on that. And there, there is no way but, we would pass. But you also at that point had budget. fifty something seats. And here you've got sixty four. So you don't mm -hmm. need a lot of bribery to get your budget passed with sixty four seats, right? But anyway, <laughs> we don't do bribery. I'll just, uh, edit you. out bribery. I'll keep uh, us out of court. Uh, we'll use a different word. Um, look, I, I think the pro uh, we can talk about things like HPMAs, um, but a lot of them have been stopped or changed when they were still theoretical. In Edinburgh in particular, in Glasgow, there is, there is the reality of rent caps, which we know because um, we, you know, I see it in daily life and we have evidence now and we hear about it and the studies have been done that institutional investors in particular, if they've got a decision to make over whether to build a buy-to-let uh, buy-to-rent block of flats in Birmingham or Edinburgh, they're going to choose Birmingham because they see this as a hostile environment and the return is not as high. And we also know, because again, in my daily life with SMEs, I speak to people who, uh, uh, who run letting agencies, for instance, where landlords have sold because they don't think it's worth having a flat anymore, where rents for a one-bedroom flat will go from 695 to 995 in between lets because they don't know when the next time they're going to put it up. The result of that policy has been a suppression of supply and therefore an increase in rents. It's not doing what it was supposed to do. But I don't think you can change it because I don't think the Greens will let you change it. And is that where we potentially get to a problem? Is the policies in practice are very... In, in theory, they could be changed, like HPMAs. In practice, how do you change them and when the you rent, know they're not working? Well, remember, the rent cap is a temporary measure. And people can, of course, uh, landlords can, of course, uh, increase their rent 3%, 6% in certain specific circumstances 
as as well. But the Parliament would have to vote for it to continue until March 2024 uh, and not, not, not beyond that. Uh, so it's a temporary measure that's in place for a good reason and was in for a good reason, particularly during uh, COVID. And then, of course, we've had the cost of living crisis. And you talk to anybody in the city about the cost of rent, that actually people in the city in particular, not only in Edinburgh, but in particular, are really thankful for having those rent controls uh, in place. In terms of policy, you know, we are living through a time where, as I have said, literally just a few weeks ago, the UN said July was the hottest month in human history. The climate emergency is not some future existential threat. It's happening right now. Whether it's heat records being broken in Europe, uh, whether it's Maui on fire, you know, and my heart's go out to every single family devastated uh, by that tragedy. Being in coalition with a Green Party that puts the climate emergency, as we do, front and centre of its policy making, I think is a good thing. Absolutely, do you, do. you don't think the Green Party believe no. in tackling the climate? Oh, no, I, I think the Green Party, as Patrick Harvey said in response to Robin Harper the other day, I think the Green Party's focus has shifted from climate onto social policy. Mm. No, I, 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 the social policy is certainly an element uh, of uh, the policy prospectus, as it is ours as well. But we could slip into the presumption that Green Party policy is green policy. That's not always necessarily the case. Green Party policy would stop oil and gas extraction full stop, which would prevent the profits that the renewables industry needs to, to press on with renewables. Now, that's not Green Party policy, but a lot of people would argue that it's Green policy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and again, you're right to make the distinction between Green Party policy and Green policy. My point is that at a time when the existential threat of the climate emergency has never been so real, being in a cooperation agreement with the Green Party, for me, makes sure that that issue of the climate emergency, they are pushing us in the SNP, not that I think we necessarily uh, altogether need it, given how dramatic uh, particularly recent events have been, but they make sure uh, that, that we are being pushed as far as we possibly can uh, on these issues in government. That's no bad thing. Just a, a quick final one, potentially, on this, actually. Um, I'm just going to put some quotes to you. They're killing us, one SNP MSP told The Herald on Sunday, as to the Greens' involvement in government. Joanna Cherry said she wants to see the agreement renegotiated. Uh, Fergus Ewing, members supported by a majority, the two candidates who would likely have scrapped the Butte House agreement, a majority of those members who voted in their first preference, excuse me, a majority of those members voted in their first preference, 52% voted for either Ash Regan or Kate Forbes, both expressed serious concerns about the deal. Kate Forbes says the party should check in with members about the content of the deal. Will you do that? We just checked in. We just had a leadership contest, and I stood but unequivocally. That's the point. That's the I point. stood unequivocally. I'll, I'll come to that yeah. point because Kate didn't say we should rip up uh, the 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 uh, agreement with the Greens uh, at all. Ash took a much harder view, and and, and that's fine. And she got I don't know ten, eleven uh, percent uh, of the vote. My point is that we just checked in with members mm. uh, on uh, the Butte House uh, agreement. But there's been a material and change, they hasn't there? me as the candidate who unequivocally stood on the platform to continue that cooperation mm. agreement. But your party's so eating I'm not, itself. I'm not... No, there's some people who uh, disagree vociferously, uh, and Fergus Ewing chiefly uh, amongst them, in terms of uh, our cooperation agreement uh, with the Greens. But for me, uh, look, parties that navel-gaze uh, continually... Uh, rightly get punished. Uh, we have put this to the members. We have an agreement in place. Yes, there are review mechanisms ourselves within the Butte House Agreement. You can read it uh, there in terms of government uh, checking in on where we are in terms of the Butte House Agreement. But for me, uh, it is, it is, I know it is still uh, a cooperation agreement that is backed uh, by our party. So signed, sealed, delivered, 
till the next election, 2026. For example, no discussion on this with members at conference coming Gosh. up in a few months. Look, I don't think it will be discussed at conference. It's not for me to decide what the conference agenda is. you don't is. want to that's see it on the, the agenda? That's for conferences committee okay. to decide. I've said that the you know, conferences committee uh, will get the full uh, authority to look at what comes in front of conference and what doesn't. Uh, and, of course, we just had... Uh, an independence convention where I think 50 speakers from the SNP spoke. Uh, I wasn't there looking at the cards and deciding who spoke. We had Ash Reagan speaking, for example. We had many other people speaking uh, uh, at that convention. Uh, and I'm not sure the Green Deal was mentioned at once. And if it was, it certainly uh, wasn't uh, mentioned by uh, the majority of members by any stretch of the imagination. OK, very interesting. Uh, right, we want to move on. Uh, let us go to ooh, our next question, uh, which is from Philip. Where's Philip? Have you made it, Philip? Here's Philip here. We'll just get a microphone to you while I read another compliment. Uh, you know, so have you not had any questions from any women at all? It's all been men. Good point. Yeah, well, fair. I mean, have you submitted questions? What would you like to ask? Submit oh, your question your, now. It's your fault. There's there's a, no, 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 I'm saying I, I, I'm not sure what the submissions have been, but you're welcome to submit them. Hollywoodsources.com forward slash ask is where to submit your questions. Um, Philip said, simply the best analysis of Scottish politics available. Thanks very much, Philip. Thanks for being here. What's your question? Uh, First Minister, I travelled from Inverness today, a journey I've probably made 2,000 times in my life. And for the last five years, I've had to pass a point in the road where I was the first in the scene of a head-on collision and someone died in my arms as I was giving them first aid. When will the promise of the Highlands to duel the A9 and the A96 be delivered? Yeah, and sorry you had to go go through that. So I can't pluck you a date. I can't tell you a date when the A9 uh, drilling will be complete, or the A96. I will say more about the A9, uh, particularly in the programme uh, for government. I hope to say uh, more about the A9 uh, in particular. And that commitment uh, to dual A9 and A96 continues to be our party policy. And uh, particularly on the A9, there's just no argument about the fact that that uh, commitment is cast iron. On A96, uh, inverse in air, including the name bypass, again, there's no disagreement or argument uh, about that. For the other sections, yeah, we are looking at climate compatibility because it is important, uh, given the fact that we're going to have to take some really difficult decisions um, right across every single portfolio, not just transport, but if you look about heating buildings, uh, agriculture, and so many others if it comes to meeting our really ambitious and world-leading climate change uh, targets. But I can give you an absolute promise, and don't take my word for it. I mean, judge us by our, our deeds for sure uh, when it comes to, to, to dueling of the A9. Um, that is going to be a significant uh, priority for us. Uh, and for me and, and, the, and the administration uh, that I lead, as well as uh, making progress on the A96. So uh, without um, giving an exclusive to, 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 to these guys, to um, just watch this space uh, in, in, in a couple of weeks' time. I hope okay. to be able Thank to say you. more. Uh, we're very grateful for your time, by the way. We don't have ages left, so if you've got questions, now's the time. Uh, let's go to a question from Jill uh, next, uh, who says... Uh, Jill, are you here? This is on uh, uh, skills gaps... Uh, on further education. I think Jill's over at the back over that way. Uh, Love the podcast. Listen every week, says Jill. The analysis insightful from Jeff and Andy. That's nice. That's a compliment for you both. Uh, Particularly enjoyed the recent analysis on SQA results. Uh, Looking forward to an episode focused on education in future, which we absolutely will do. Hello, Jill. What's your question? Hi, Callum. Thanks very much. Um, I've worked in further education and higher education for the last 20 years in Scotland. Um, And I think there's growing concern around what's evidently a skills gap, which has emerged and continues to grow. So just, um, Hamza, very interested to hear how you plan to address the consistent underfunding that I believe there has been in further education moving forward. So first and foremost, 
funding education is, of course, going to be a significant priority for us. And, and again, that will be demonstrated through the budget. And that's why I talk about progressive taxation uh, for me. And again, we'll give more detail of that in the months to come when we finalise, uh, of course, our budget. Because we are living in the most difficult times in terms of the pressure on the public finances. I can't get away from it. And there are a whole host of commitments you've just heard a moment ago, for example, on our capital budget our commitment in relation to A9, A96. Uh, and, of course, on our resource budget, a whole host of commitments. So we've got to find ways of, of course, increasing the tax base where we can, but in, in ensuring that we have more revenue to spend on uh, further and higher uh, education. I suppose the point I wanted to, to, to make is, for me, focusing on the poverty-related attainment gap is, of course, important, and people will rightly judge the government on the progress we make uh, on that but also making sure that we have excellence in education. And you'll have heard Jenny Gilruth, former teacher, of course, now Cabinet Secretary for Education, talk relentlessly about that, and she will continue to do that. We cannot be complacent, and we will never be complacent about our education system. We talk about it being world-class, and we have an excellent example of world-class university, of course, in this city. Uh, but even when it comes to our school education, I don't want us at all to demonstrate an iota of complacency. Excellence in education is why I decided that we uh, made the decision pretty early on to rejoin some international uh, league tables to have that comparison uh, in relation to how we match up with other countries uh, in the world. So you'll, as well as hearing us talk about reducing the poverty-related attainment gap, narrowing that poverty-related attainment gap, um, substantially uh, uh, reducing it, what more can we do to ensure that we have excellence in education, I think, is going to be the key challenge. Just very quickly, I mean, I think it's a really important point uh, about colleges, actually. Sandy Begbie from SFE is in the room, who's also chair of the Developing Young Workforce, and wrote a very important thing uh, about No Wrong Path. Uh, and, you know, I think in this country we treat the college sector with a kind of nod of the head, as if it's a place to go when you can't quite work out what to do with yourself because you didn't get into university. It's not that. It shouldn't be that. It's as important as the university sector. Um, and I think, you know, that's something that needs... Uh, a lot of thought. I, as you know, I could fill a podcast, Callum, with yeah, well, education. I'm not going to, going with to. my experience of, uh, of four kids in state school. But, um, you know, I, I, fundamentally, uh, I want to say well done for rejoining Tim's and Pearl's. Yeah. It's a critically important step for Scottish education. The only one we're in now is PISA, as you know. These are the which has us, these international are the comparisons. International comparisons. We mm. pull out of them. We're still in PISA, which has us outside the top 30. Mm. So we shouldn't be saying we're excellent at education because the data tells us different. But I think first we need to know how we're doing before we can then decide what to do about it. So I think it's only fair to say a big thumbs up for rejoining the schemes because uh, I think you know, we need to understand where we actually are before we can decide what needs to be done about it. Uh, we've covered so much ground and we are very, very grateful. We're nearly there, I promise. Um, I was just going to ask a quick one on energy because that's always a, an important topic in our podcast. And I think it's important that we ask you about. Uh, pod, uh, Jeff has never mentioned it in the podcast. <laughs> yeah. Has he ever spoken about energy? Honestly, I've well, mentioned that a couple of times in passing. No, I'm not going to bore everyone because I think people know my. my yeah, views, I think you are. But I was <laughs> on the. Sorry, is that in the yet? Yeah, I was on the train on the way down. I was accosted by this man, Paul. The handsome man here. Hi, Paul. Thanks for being uh, here. A long-term <laughs> SNP supporter might be in the balance just now, and his words were pretty profound. He said, The problem for me is the SNP's presumption against oil and gas exploration feels like a presumption against my career, uh, my livelihood, and my ability to put food on my family's uh, table. Uh, are the SNP going to address that in their upcoming policy interventions? So we will address it, and I've said really clearly to people that when it comes to decisions about future oil and gas licences, 
I think it's right that we start from the position of saying, look, we need to be convinced about why they should go uh, ahead because we are facing a climate emergency. It's not just, it's not just the, the, the carbon footprint of actually extracting that oil and gas, but then what happens in relation to its usage. So I think we're right to, to question that and start from that position. But there's three things I think that need to be factored in. One is our climate obligations. You know, we need to try to keep 1.5 degrees alive. If we don't keep that alive, then the planet is literally facing an existential threat. But secondly, it has to be workers. I mean, we cannot do, we should never be forgiven if we do to the northeast what Thatcher did to mining and steel communities right across the country. We should never be forgiven if that's what we do. We're not going to do that. So trying to accelerate that just transition, hence why one of my first announcements as First Minister was an additional 25 million uh, towards that just transition is really important. And then energy security, I think, is hugely important, not just domestically, but internationally too. When I was in Europe uh, recently in, in, in Brussels, the number one issue they wanted to talk to me about uh, continually was how <coughs> Scotland can help to provide a solution to the energy challenge they're facing. They're desperately keen, Europe, of course, to get off foreign imports of gas, uh, Russian gas in particular, and Scotland has the ability to, to, to play a massive role, I think, in that. So workers absolutely are going to be at the heart uh, of that, but I don't think it's wrong to start from a position of saying, actually, look, we need convincing. Uh, and, and certainly I don't support Rishi Sunak coming up and saying 100 new licences uh, should be granted. One follow-up for me, and, and this is not more of a, an observation and maybe a little bit of advice. Who knows, Hamza? Yeah, you might do, but, but it strikes me that you mentioned other countries facing, every country's facing an energy security challenge. We're actually in quite a unique position in Scotland as we have the critical mass <coughs> of skills and experience owing to oil and gas that can really make a significant inroad to this, actually put us at a competitive advantage. And I'm talking about particularly offshore wind, floating offshore wind, which I think we both know has is, is, got huge potential for us. But the problem is, right now, and we're seeing it with some announcements coming out just now, is that there's going to be delays to a lot of this offshore wind, even the Scotland, fantastic announcement, incidentally, from the Scottish government. And we're not going to have them available at scale. You cannot ask companies to send, say, look, it's coming. Honestly, guys, hold on. All your workforce, there's projects coming. You'll be all right. You'll be all right. Just foist out a little bit more cash and you'll be okay. That's not how a supply chain works. It's not how an economic yeah, order, strategy works. No. So I do, it's really important. I think that that's acknowledged in whatever you say about oil and gas. Because if we want to accelerate to net zero and actually be uh, more carbon friendly, lower our emissions and do it at pace, you actually need to do it with the critical mass that's been bought, uh, brought up in oil and gas. May, one final question. I know we've got to go. It's, it's a more observation. We're in the city of Edinburgh. Financial services, world-class financial services, asset management particularly. We've got a world-class energy sector. You combine the two, not only can you get to net zero with the high-value manufacturing, you can finance it as well. Now, that says to me there's an economic strategy for growth in Scotland that should really be looked at by the Scottish Government. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I'm going to see Phoenix, I think, uh, in just a couple of, couple of weeks. You know, I'm going to speak to Phoenix uh, about... Well, that's one of the issues we'll be talking about. I know we're pressed for Well, time. I just want to get you home for your tea, and we can stay all night <laughs> if you want to. Just, just, I mean, that's, <laughs> this takes us right back to the start, though, actually, about um, you being able to stamp a vision on this, because we often talk about sides in that debate. You know, are you on the side of hydrocarbons or are you on the side of renewables? The reality of that debate is that without the profits of renewables, the current profits no, of no, renewables... oil and gas. Yeah, sorry, current profits of hydrocarbons I'll of oil and right, gas, Andy. there is no future renewables industry. And actually, being able to... And, and if you articulated that very strongly and very clearly, a lot of people would come with you on that. Because yeah, it's very yeah, understandable, and it's also true. Uh, yes. And I think that's the sort of thing that could really 
you know, be the Hamza vision, which we haven't heard before. Yeah, I, I don't know how many times you're going to try a Yusufism Hamza, but it's not, it's <laughs> not working, and I did change it. Uh, but but <laughs> I, 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 I take your point. I think there has definitely got to be a discussion about transition and the pace of that transition, right? And I, I want to accelerate that transition and that pace. So I hear what you and Jeff have to say. The slight counter to that, and some of where some of my concern uh, comes in, is look. Oil and gas is lucrative, far more lucrative in terms of a commodity. Yeah, 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 you can yeah, just yeah. see that from the prices uh, in relation to, 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 to renewables as things stand. And therefore, if there's a decision for a supply chain worker to either, or supply chain, supply chain company to go to oil and gas or to go to renewables, many of them, all of them, many of them will go to oil and gas. And so my concern, you can come in in a second, don't worry. Uh, <laughs> my concern is that if we don't shift that balance then we end up that supply chain being uh, completely focused on oil and gas, where we need to make pace with infrastructure and renewables. Very, very quickly, and, and I, you said this to me the other day, and I thought about it, and I thought, but there's your jobs boom. Mm -hmm. You know, if you think about it, with the profits of oil and gas, but, but I think we're thinking this is binary things. I think Andy's touched on it there. You know, everyone thinks about big oil, Shell, Equinor, BP, uh, Total. But it's the supply chains that support them that are so critical. Mm -hmm. They're the ones that are so critical. So they can have the best of both worlds. Come up here and not get when, the benefit. Not, not, not when they have a workforce but, shortage, but, but, uh, the size and scale. So, now, if I had immigration so, powers, so, so right we could now, absolutely incentivise right now, them. But, so right now we have a problem here. with a working age population. Mm -hmm. We can't attract people to our country. Mm -hmm. I tell you what would attract them. Mm -hmm. High value jobs in an energy sector underpinned by oil and gas profits as you transition to renewables. That's my point about a growth Absolutely. strategy. And I think that's how you've got the attempt. Absolutely. Sorry, I, that's not fair. Okay, no, I'm going to shut up. I don't, I don't necessarily disagree. This is like uh, literally what we do when we're chatting. My we're, question is, what would you be doing if you were chief of staff right now and we needed to get the first minister off the stage and out the door? I, <laughs> I'm going I'm to reveal something. And I know we're live and I don't know I did my Sean Connery story earlier on. There was an instance... I'm looking over here, guys. This is not for the journalists. This is more for fun. Than, you know. <laughs> I oh, did yes, actually... Sure it was a very <laughs> awkward moment. I won't go into detail because we are live, but I did actually knock a fire alarm once at an event. Did you? <laughs> and I will not tell you where it was. OK. <laughs> well, I think you can get fined for that, can't you? <laughs> Retrospectively. <laughs> no, no, no. Sorry, sorry. Somebody I knew close right, to me okay, knocked yeah. a fire alarm. I just thought I'd like you to take the record there. That's, the edit. That's for the edit suite. At the next... Yeah, exactly. At the next live event, Jeff will tell that full story before we start recording. And that'll be specifically for anyone who's with us. Um, First Minister, Hamza Yusuf, thank you very much. Thank, thank you brilliant. for being here. The First Minister. Thank you also to the Scotch Whiskey Association's Made to Be Measured campaign, who are sponsoring this podcast, as you know, and to them, and indeed to Diageo, for hosting us in the magnificent Johnny Walker on Princess Street in Edinburgh. Thank you to our producers, Angus Mitchell and Ollie Lewis. Thank you to our technical production team, led by Scott Davidson. Thank you to Jeff Aberdeen and to Andy McKeever. And most importantly, thank you for coming. This is, uh, unbelievably, six months since Nicola Sturgeon announced she was going to resign. Ten days later, we launched this podcast, and here we are, filling a room, and we are so, so grateful for you being here, for you listening and subscribing and showing up. So thank you very much, and we will speak to you next week. Thank you. Thank you.